0: So grateful that you are here this morning with us. I hope that you have a Bible with you that you can open or that you can turn on. I wanna invite you to join me in Genesis chapter three. I believe on the screen or at the top of your bulletin, it's gonna say Hebrews. We're gonna get there eventually, Um, but I'm just gonna ask that you would walk with me. I know sometimes when we get um, in scripture, you just kind of find a place and just kind of sit there and then let the preacher do all the moving back and forth. But I hope this morning you'll join me because I want you to see Um, Through the text, I want you to see what's there, what God is saying to all of us. So we're going to start in Genesis chapter 3, and then we are going to move eventually and get there to Hebrews chapter 10. But I appreciate you, Greg, and those that serve with him and leading us in worship. And thank you, young men, for taking up the offering and for Mark hitting the record on the the, uh, recorder. I appreciate everything that everybody is doing around this church in each and every single week to make it what it is. Today And so uh, Genesis chapter 3, we have been going through a series of Advent messages. And we've been just asking the question. We know that during this time we recognize the coming of the Savior. We recognize the, the uh, recognition of Jesus' birth. But sometimes we need to ask ourselves, why do we need a Savior? What is so significant about Christmas? What is so needed about Christmas? Why is it that we need to have a Savior in this world? And we've been talking over the last several weeks been talking about, well, the problem is the sin. Sin has come into the world, sin has infected every single one of us, and we need a Savior because we need to be forgiven and saved from our sins. And so the last several weeks, we've talked about what is such a big deal with sin. Why is sin such a problem? We talked about how sin separates us and separates us in our relationship and fellowship with God. We talked about how sin deceives us. And sometimes we can think that we're moving along and we're kind of following our own remedies, we're following our own direction, and and sin has a way of deceiving us and making us think that we're better than we are. We talked about last week as far as sin causing us to compromise. And how many times do you and I know what God wants us to do, but the influences, the pressure from this world gets you and I to give in, to compromise, to back up, to capitulate, if you will, And, and sin does that to us. Well, here in this final message talking about the Advent season and why we need a Savior, I want to present to you or put before you just the reality that we need a Savior because we need to be forgiven. We need to be forgiven because we have sinned. We need to be forgiven because of our state before God. We need to be forgiven because of our humanity. And the reason why we need a Savior is because we all need to be forgiven. Every single one of us in this room needs to be forgiven of our sin. And like yesterday, as we put that on the calendar, we don't have a for sure date that we know that that is the day of the birth of our Savior, but we recognize that on the Christian calendar as being the day every year that we recognize when Jesus was born there in the manger, and we, so we celebrate, and it's not just about the gifts, it's not just about the, the family activities, it's not just about the events that happen during that Christmas season, it's about us celebrating that a Savior has come to provide the forgiveness of, That we need. But in order to get there this morning, I want us to look at a bit of a story. Friday night, we had a Christmas Eve service, and I hope that you're able to be here for that. If not, as Greg said already, you can go ahead and mark that on your calendar that we're gonna, by God's grace, and if if it's God's will, we're gonna do another Christmas Eve service. So I know some of you said, well, I've got family this, and I'm gonna be out of town for that. I'm just gonna encourage you to say, move everything around that Christmas Eve service for us to come together. It's a good time to catch your breath. It's a good time to kind of remind yourself to reset your direction and just kind of to draw back in and say, what is this week all about? So we are going to be moving in that direction. But last Friday night, we had a Christmas Eve service, and people were telling stories. Adam told stories. Jenna told stories about what Christmas means and where they're at in their Christmas story. And as they were telling stories, a lot of times we can identify some of us are, so much of our life is expressed through story. So this morning, I want us to just look at together. You see there at the top of your notes, I want to look at the story of forgiveness. And I hope that you will follow along with me as we move throughout the text. We're going to start in Genesis. We're going to end up towards the end of the New Testament there in Hebrews. But I want you to see with me how this story of forgiveness unfolds to where we are at today in 2021, being able to celebrate a Savior to be grateful for a Savior. And hopefully, hopefully, you this morning know that you are forgiven by such a Savior. So the story begins in Genesis chapter 3. It is what the Bible has entitled. You see, many of you will see this at the top of the heading there in Genesis chapter 3, talking about the fall. The story begins, chapter 1 is the fall. You see, God had created man and woman. He had created all of the earth and he had put man there in the garden in 2 and 15, chapter 2 and 15, and God put man in the garden and said, okay, you can have anything that you want in the garden. You just cannot have the fruit of this one particular tree. Everything else is yours, but you cannot have this. Well, then the story continues on and you get into Genesis chapter three and you have Adam and Eve and they are there in the garden and here comes the snake. The snake comes and they tempt Eve and says, Eve, why don't you just take a little bite of that fruit? Eve, why don't you just have a little bit of it? And it tells us there in chapter three and in verse six, it says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and then it was a light to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And the Bible goes on and it says, then the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin So at the very beginning of the story, you see that God revealed his authority to creation. He had told Adam, Adam, I have set you in this garden. You can have anything you want except for the fruit of this one tree. Anything else is yours. You just do not touch that. He had revealed his authority to say, this is what I want you to do. This is where I expect you to go. This is what is in bounds, and this is what isn't in bounds." And then what do we see in Genesis chapter 3? Is humanity then rebelled against the creator. Adam and Eve said, no, God, we're going to take our way and not your way. And so often that's where sin begins in our lives this morning is that we decide we want our direction instead of God's direction. We think that we know what way we're going to do it and we're not going to do it God's way. We want our will over God's will. We want our ideas over God's ideas. And from this very beginning, chapter one of the story, known as the fall, you see God revealing his authority, man rebelling against his creator, and the result was sin entered into the world. Now, at this point in the story, we can all relate, because Genesis 3 reminds us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Genesis 3 also, or Romans chapter 3, reminds us, as it is written, no man is righteous, no, not one. So at this point in the story, every single one of us can say, you know what? I can identify with that. But you know, sometimes in our humanity, we try to think about God as being this big meanie. And all God wants to do is tell us what we can't do. All God wants to do is just tell us why we can't, what we can't, and what we shouldn't be doing with our lives. All we think about God is always saying, don't, 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 don't. Let your eyes fall down to Genesis 3, in Verse 21. Because the Bible tells us in 3 and 21 that after man and woman had sinned, after God had came in and passed judgment and consequence upon man, woman, and the snake, after all this was done, they were going to be cast out of the garden. The consequences of sin was going to linger. It says in verse 21, And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. You know, even in the midst of our sin, brothers and sisters, God has compassion on us. And praise be to God that as we sit here this morning, God has had compassion on us. God has seen fit even in our undeserving state, even in our unmerited state, even in the state of our rebellion, even in the state of our hardheadedness, even in the state of all the things that we have transgressed and rebelled against God. Praise be to God that he has shown compassion on us. So at this point in the story, we all are on... The story, we're all on the same page. Well, the, the story of history continues. You have the call of Abraham. <clears throat> you have the chosen people. You have the Egyptian bondage. You had the deliverance out of Mount Sinai. And you come all the way to Leviticus chapter 16. You get to the second chapter of the story that i want you to see there in leviticus chapter 16 we started in chapter one when it comes to the story talking about the fall and now in leviticus 16 well hopefully some of you are going to be there in a couple months in your bible reading so you might as well go ahead and get a jump on it finding out where leviticus is at looking at that page but in leviticus 16 the second chapter opens up i'm going to entitle it the process It's the process. Because after you see the history of God's people in Genesis and Exodus, and as they are on their way from Mount Sinai to the promised land, and God is revealing his law to his people, God realizes that there is a fracture. There is a breaking in the relationship and the fellowship between him and his people. So God says here, I'm going to give you the means by which you can restore fellowship with me. So all of Leviticus is mostly about how a sinful people approach a holy God. How a sinful people can approach a holy God and be found in one semblance of righteousness before this God. How does a sinful people be in right relationship and fellowship with the holy God? That's what Leviticus is mostly about. In Leviticus chapter 16, you see this one special event that he describes and takes place. It's called the Day of Atonement. And we're not going to read the entire chapter 16 because I'm sure I'll put you all to sleep before I finish the last bit of it. So let me just kind of uh, cliff note it. What happens during the Day of Atonement is you have the high priest and he is representative of all the people. You have the tabernacle. You have the holy place of God representing the presence of the God. Presence presence of God, not the God, of God. And then you have the sacrifices. And the way it would work is you would take two goats. One goat would be called the scapegoat. And on this goat, the priest would gather this goat together, and he would pronounce all of the sins of the people, all of the bad things you had done all year long, the things you had said, the things you shouldn't, shouldn't have done, the things that you did do but you shouldn't do, all the things, that, all the wrongs, the sins that you would be guilty for, he would pronounce all of those, symbolically place all of those on that goat. And then they would take the scapegoat, and they would run it out of the camp and run it out into the wilderness. And it was symbolic of the sins being removed from the people. Then he would take that second goat. And he would sacrifice it. He would take a portion of the meat. Take a portion of the blood. And he would bring that sacrifice. And not only would he cleanse the temple, he would cleanse and purify himself. And then once that he was ready, once the temple was ready, he would then go into the Holy of Holies and he would then sacrifice offer the sacrifice for all the people for their sins of the entire past year. Listen to how Leviticus puts it in Leviticus 16 and verse 20. This is what the Bible says. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat and Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Then skip down to verse 30 and listen to what the Bible continues. It says, For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. And then down to verse 34. And this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses may say, well, Spence, what are you trying to get at here? Well, I I want you to see the process, the process by which people would return, be reconciled back to this holy God. There was this day of atonement. It was the means of restoring fellowship with God. There was a precise step, a sacrifice, and purification that Aaron would come and he would put the scapegoat and the sins would be removed from the people. He would offer up the sacrifice. God would accept the sacrifice, as the pleasing sacrifice, and therefore that atonement had been made for all the people. But don't miss it. It was once a year. So yes, you had the normal sacrifices that came in the ebb and the flow of the religious life, but this one day when the sacrifices or the atonement would be made for all the nation was only once a year. So all the things that you had done, all the ways that you had fractured your relationship, all these ways that you had separated yourself from God, all the ways that you'd been disobedient, all the ways that you had rebelled, all the ways that you had moved away from where God wanted you to be, there was one time a year that you would then come and you would present yourself and they would be presented to God and would be atoned for your sins. And what was the point of the process? The point of the process would remind them of their need, to remind them of their guilt, to remind them of their need for Creator. So there was a process. And some of us might be in the process today trying to figure this whole thing out. How do I live a life that is pleasing to God, but also a life that is appealing to the culture? Some of us are trying to work this process out in this life. How do I balance wanting, needing money, and wanting and needing a relationship with my family? Some of us are trying to balance this out of how we serve God, and we also have a happy life. Sometimes we think that, You can't have both ends. Sometimes we think that you have to sacrifice happiness for service to God. And so we are trying to figure out this process. You had an entire nation of Israel that was trying to figure out this process of how it is that they live in right relationship and fellowship with God. They had a whole church out there that was trying to figure out, God, what is it that you want us to do? God, how is it that we might please and serve you? So we're all in chapter 1. But I wonder if you're in chapter two. Are you still in this process of trying to figure out who it is that you're going to serve? Are you going to serve God or are you going to serve money? Are you going to serve yourself or are you going to serve the risen Savior? Are you going to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in your life or are you going to continue to seek the pleasures and the lies and the temptations of this world? Where are you at in the process? So the story unfolded in Genesis three, God realized there needed to be redemption. God realized there needed to be forgiveness and so he comes in Leviticus and he says, okay so in the meantime, until I send my son Jesus Christ, this is how you live holy before me. But if you look at how the day of atonement is represented, it's not meant to remove sin, it's just simply to cover sin until the coming of Christ. That's where I want you to join me in Hebrews chapter 10 because in Hebrews chapter 10 we come to the third chapter of the story and it comes to the reality. You have the fall, you have the process, and then you come to the reality. And the reality is, is every single one of us are going through this life answering one question. What happens when I die? Oh, we've come up with a lot of different ideas. Oh, when I die, I'll be reincarnated. Oh, when I die, I'll just cease to exist. Oh, when I die, you know what, I'll just figure it out then. Oh, when I die, you know, I don't have to worry about it. I'm in my teens, I'm in my 20s, I'm in my 30s. Who cares? I've got time to spare. Everybody is asking the question, what happens when I die? May I tell you this morning that you don't have to ask the question because God has already shown you the answer. God has already given us the answer, what is going to happen when we die. And the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 9 that when we die, we will stand and give an account to God for our lives. 2 Corinthians chapter five tells us that all of us will stand before the Bemis seat of Christ and we will give an answer to Christ. When we die, we will be judged and that will then determine what we do with the rest of eternity that God has in store for us. When we die, it will be a matter of what we did with this life. And so the question is, is when we live this life, are we living this life under the banner of forgiveness or are we living this life saying we do not need to be forgiven? He talks to them about the fall. He shows us the process, but then he gets to the reality because if you fast forward through the pages of history, you have the the, the coming, the advent of Jesus Christ. You had the ministry of Jesus Christ. And now you have the Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews, and he's writing to this group of Christians to remind them why Christ is superior to the law, why you don't have to live under the bondage of the Old Testament law in a picture of New Testament grace. He's trying to remind them of why Christ is the answer. Of why Jesus is the Messiah, of why Christ is the Savior, the King of Kings, the Prince of Peace. He's reminding them why they need a Savior and why they should be excited about a Savior that has come. Yesterday, your opening presents, maybe the day before that, your opening presents. Maybe you're like some of my nieces and nephews and you got to wait till the 29th to open up presents. But when you get to that time of opening presents, you know how those kids, they can get so excited and they can get so happy and they can jump up and down and and I'm watching this yesterday thinking, I wish I could get that excited about Jesus. Oh, preacher, I am that excited about Jesus. Well, you have a hard way of showing it sometimes. Some of us can come in and we never can crack a smile. We never can get excited. We never tell anybody about what we got. We come in and we sit down and and we leave and we're going, preacher, I'm just so tickled. I'm so excited about Christmas and I think I am not convinced. Some of those kids yesterday, they get those toys and they want to tell someone else, hey, look at my toy. They want to tell their neighbors, look at my toy. They want to tell other family, look at my toys. They're excited. They get happy when they open it. They get happy when they talk about it. They get happy when they think about being able to play with those toys. They get excited about the gift that has been given. And brothers and sisters, I wonder that if we were to take a poll of the community of Wellston, would they say that this church has been excited this season? Or is it just going through the motions and sure they understand? So here's the reality. The reality is that all of our works, all of our efforts, all of our opinions about us saving ourselves, it never works hebrews chapter 10 and verse 1 listen to how the writer hebrews presents it to the people he says for since the law has but a shadow of good things to come instead of the true form of these realities it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year may perfect those who draw near you may say spence what in the world is that saying what he is saying is is that in this old style in this old process every year you had to offer sacrifices every so many months you had to offer sacrifices every single time you sinned, you have to offer sacrifices and he's saying all of these actions to try to cleanse yourselves was never going to be the permanent fix that god had planned and purposed for you all of these things are constantly ongoing they're ongoing the sacrificial process i put them in your notes the sacrificial process never ends It's like you never take a shower once and for all. It's a continual thing. You get up, you make your sacrifices, you go back home, you mess up, you go back and give your sacrifices every single year. All of these are going on, and they never make the person who draws near to God perfect. But He says in verse 2, Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers having once been clean, cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of the sins every year for it is impossible for the blood of the bulls and goats to take away the sins. What he is saying is, is that the problem with the process of the day of atonement and this sacrifice, this, in our vernacular, works-based religion. We mark boxes. We check off things. Well, I give financially to the church, so that's one good thing. Well, I go to church once a month, so that's my second good thing. And as long as I have three good things, then I'm right with God. We have this idea that it's all about marking boxes, or it's all about our actions, or it's all about the performance, or it's all about coming to church and putting on a show. It's all about putting these things. So every year we have to put something on our our social media page about the coming of Jesus so we can say, ha, Jesus, look, I'm representing. And we have these ideas that that is what this process is about. He says the reality is, is all of our good works, all of our good efforts, all of our good intentions are not sufficient for our penalty of sin before a holy God. How many times do we think that we we should get a pat on the back from God? Oh, God, I'm doing everything you want me to do. Oh, God, I'm trying hard. God, you know I'm doing better than so-and-so. Oh, God, you know I'm trying harder than so-and-so. God, you know I'm present. God, you know I show up. God, you know I do this. God, you know I do this. And we start to think that God needs us or that God should be happy that he has us on, our, on his team. Where we start to be thinking that, well, we've done more so we can coast here. We've done this. And so we have this idea that it's all about our works. It's all about the, the sacrifices that we made. It's all about the things that we do. And we miss It's about what Jesus has done for us. So as the writer in Hebrews is reminding us that there is this cycle. There is this sin, and then they would sacrifice. They would sin, and they would sacrifice. A rinse and repeat, if you think about the back of a shampoo bottle, is this idea that it was just constantly back and forth, back and forth. And I want you to know this morning that there are a lot of people in this world today that are stuck in this hamster wheel of performance. And they think it's all about being good enough. To make Jesus happy. Be good enough. To make God happy. So they go to confession. Once a year. And they sit in there. And they say. Forgive me father. For I have sinned. And they think there's some type of forgiveness. They think there's some type of remission. For their sins. If they just say what they did was wrong. Or they think if they show up for Christmas and Easter. And you have those CEOs. Or or they think that if they just do enough good things. It will overwhelm their bad things. But the reality is. Is that we can never earn our own salvation. We can never be good Enough. And as the writer of Hebrews is reminding them, he says in verse 4, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away the sins. In other words, sins are not covered through that sacrifice. The sins are covered, not removed. So even if the people would come for the Day of Atonement, the Day of Atonement would cover their sins, but they wouldn't remove the sins from them. But the beauty of what Jesus has done is recorded for us in in Psalm 103. Let me turn there and read it into your hearing because in Psalm 103, he reminds us of what Christ has done for us. In verse 10 of Psalm 103, he says this, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven, and for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is the steadfast love towards those who fear him. For as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. He is saying that when we come to Jesus Christ, it's not a matter of having to come and redo this over and over and over again. The reality is, is that we need a savior because the savior was that once and for all sacrifice for us. So you go from story chapter 3 to chapter 4, and you come to this picture of the Savior. Back down there in chapter 10 and verse 11, it says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. So, so the, 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 the story of forgiveness says, here's where you're at. Humanity has fallen. God has given an Old Testament process by which we can be right with this Savior. But the reality is that it's constant, a gerbil wheel, a hamster wheel, if you will, and we will never get where God wants us to be until we recognize that we're not the answer. We can't fix it. I don't know if every husband is like this, but I hope every husband is like this because this would make me feel a lot better. But in your husband life, you think, well, honey, you just tell me the problem. I'm going to fix it and we can go on. And then you learn some of us faster, some of us slower. But you learn that a lot of times she doesn't want you to fix it. She just wants you to listen. Well, I don't want to listen. I want to fix it. So you tell me a problem, I'll come up with a solution, and then we'll be happy. And no, that's not the point. The point is, I just want you to hear, and I want you to be compassionate, and I want you to listen to what I have to say. And it's this idea that all many times, so many times, I think, will just tell me the problem, I'll come up with a solution, and then we will move forward. And in my humanity, and in my carnality, and sometimes in my manliness, if you will, I think that I can solve the problem. I can fix the problem. And sometimes even in our spiritual lives, you and I can start to think that we can fix ourselves. I just need to read my Bible more. I just need to go to church more often. I just need to pray more. I need to stop doing this vice. I need to stop doing this behavior. I need to stop talking in that way. I need to stop watching this on television. I need to spend less time with these people. I need to spend more time with those people. I need to go to more Bible studies. I need to do more works. I need to be a better Christian. I need to try harder. I need to put more effort. And it's all about me, 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 thinking that I can fix myself. The writer Hebrews reminds us that all the works and all the sacrifices still fall short if we don't have a Savior. So the fourth chapter of the story brings us to the picture of a Savior. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 12, listen to what the Bible tells us. It says, but when... Christ. Christ is his office. The Savior is his office. Jesus is his name. It's the idea of saying this Savior has come. Yesterday when we wake up, it is a symbolic day on the counter that we say this is the day that Jesus was born. This is Jesus' birthday. This is when Jesus came to us. Jesus Christ, our Messiah. Jesus Christ, our Savior. Why is it such a big deal that the Savior has come? The Savior has come because he is the Christ. The Christ means that he is the person. That saves the people from their sins. He is not the spokesperson. He is not the governmental leader. He is not the good guy. He is not the poster child. He is the person to save the people from their sins. So, what does it tell us in verse 12? It says, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. What do you mean, Spence? How did he do that? He died on the cross. He lived a sinless life, he was persecuted beaten, scourged, sacrificed, crucified for no penalty of his own, for no sin of his own, for no wrong of his own, He did not deserve it. He had not transgressed the government or the people. He had never sinned before God ever, 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 ever. He did it because of my penalty and your penalty. And when he died on that cross, he was that single sacrifice for sins for all time. Why is it for all time Spence? when the animal sacrifices was continually every year? Well, the difference is because this animal sacrifices was never in the place of man. There was never the fulfillment of the law of a sinless man dying for the sake of other people. It was always meant to be a covering, always meant to be a substitute. It was never a sinless person dying for a sinful people. And the difference was is that you finally had a man. You finally had a human. You finally had the son of God. You finally had a person that could pay that once for all sacrifice before god because that's what it says there in verse 12 he said he had sat, he had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins and he sat down at the right hand of god it's saying that he offered that sacrifices and when he came up out of that grave and when he ascended back to the right hand of the father he knew that his job was done and he sat down Christ was paid. The penalty was given. There is no more of this rinse and repeat. There is no more of this hamster wheel of trying to perform before God. There is no more this need for you and I to try to be good enough to make God happy. You and I come in here and we understand that our identity is in Christ. He is the Lord of our lives. And that's enough. It's not about my performance before you. You leave here on a Sunday morning. Ultimately, I don't answer to God for what happens on a Sunday. Ultimately, I don't answer to you for what happens on a Sunday morning. Ultimately, answer to God. And ultimately, you don't answer to me or any other person in this church for what you're doing on Sunday morning. You answer to God. Because my identity is not in this church. My identity is not in you. My identity is in Christ. And he is the only sacrifice that is sufficient for my sins. Not the sacrifices of you. Not the sacrifices of a denomination. Not the sacrifices of another people. It is only the sacrifices of God. Let me read into your hearing Hebrews 1 and starting in verse 1. This is what the writer says. He says, Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent, which is more excellent than theirs. The writer Hebrews wants to present to us this picture of the Savior. This picture of the Savior that God has sent. This picture of the Savior that has offered the sacrifice once and for all. And it's the picture of the Savior that is available to all people. And that is why we get excited. That is why we get tuned up. That is why we go around this time of the year proclaiming a Savior has come. Our Lord and Jesus Christ has come to us. Why? Not because I'm saying that you don't know about it. I'm saying because there's people in this community that don't know about it. And it is an opportunity for you and I to proclaim that salvation is available to all people. That's why he says in Romans chapter 5 and verse 6. <clears throat> for while we are still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us. And that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us he's reminding us that we have something a gift a gift that has come from god and so the story forgiveness unfolds and it starts off with us sinning against god transgressing against god then it goes to this process where god shows the people this is how you restore your relationship with me and in our day and context we start looking for ways that we can get right before god and then it goes to this reality that we have to recognize i'm not enough by myself i can't do enough by myself I will never need enough by myself to come bring us to the chapter of the Savior and this picture that Jesus had come to us when we were not the answer. God has sent us the answer. So my question to you this morning is where are you at in the story? Where are you at in the story? Oh, we've already established that every single one of us are in chapter one. But are you in chapter two this morning trying to figure this thing out? You've never come to the point in yourself that you repented of your sins, that you confessed your sins, that you place your hope and your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and made him the Lord of your life. You've never been there. So you're trying to figure this process out. Which religion is a true religion? Which way should I follow? Is God real? Is God not real? Should I trust him? Should I not trust in him? Are you in the midst of chapter two in the process? or Maybe you find yourself in chapter three this morning. And you would admit there's a God and you would admit that you have a responsibility and a relationship with this God, but the reality is is that you're trying to do this Christian life on your terms and in your power and by your methods. And the reality is is that you're running yourself ragged for the wrong things. Or are you here this morning And you're in chapter four. I know my Savior lives. I know that I have been redeemed. And I know this morning I have been forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. How is it that we pursue forgiveness this morning? This story of forgiveness is available to all people, but how do we pursue it? Well, I put there in your notes just three ways, just three quick ways, and then we're going to look at a little bit more of Scripture, and then we'll be done. Just three quick ways how it is that we pursue forgiveness. The first thing is you place your faith in Jesus. You pursue forgiveness in this life by placing your faith in Jesus. Not your faith in the government. Not your faith in the medical community. Not your faith in a person. Not your faith in a denomination. Not your faith in a church. Not your faith in a a pipe dream that's going to come later. You put your faith in Jesus. And when you put your faith in Jesus, you submit your life, your lives to the Lord. Say, Jesus, here I am. You gave your life for me, so I'm going to give my life to you. Which means wherever he tells us to go, whatever he tells us to do, however he tells us to live, we are following after him. But here is the next one. So if you have been forgiven, this is where the disconnect awfully often comes, is if you have been forgiven and you know that you're a child of God here this morning, then I would tell you, proclaim the hope you have in our Savior. To proclaim the hope you have in our Savior. So many times we get saved and we say, Thank you, Jesus, for the salvation, and then we go mute. I know I've been saved, I know I'm right with God, my Father. I just don't tell anybody about it. That's a contradiction. It's not, and that is not a, bit, a position supported in scripture. You cannot find in the pages of holy scripture where you have people, faithful, Brothers and sisters in Christ, faithful believers in Jesus Christ that never say a word. I'm not saying that you have to have the same methodology as your neighbor. I'm not saying that you have to be a big time soul winner going and knocking every door. I'm just saying that when you get saved, when you get found, you're going to tell somebody about what Christ has done for you. And if you don't, do you understand what Christ has done for you? Sometimes we don't get excited because we don't understand what Christ has done for us. And so the writer there in Hebrews, when he goes on there (coughs) in the passage, he gets down there into verse 19 and he says, okay, since we have this confidence, since we have this confidence in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, he goes there in verse 22 and verse 23 and verse 24 and he gives us some examples. This is what you do when you know that your salvation is in him. He says in verse 22, let us draw near. In verse 23, he says, let us hold fast. In verse 24, he says, let us consider. I would invite for you to go back and look at that because he says, okay, if you're in chapter four and you know that you're saved and you know that you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you know your salvation is secured, then these are going to be things that we do. And I look back over this last calendar year and I think God has given us a lot of opportunities as the church He's given us a lot of opportunities in the church when it comes to ministry, he's given us a lot of opportunities in the church when it's come to outreach. There's faces that I'm looking at right now that I wasn't looking at this time last year and I am grateful. I am so grateful but church, that doesn't mean that we slow down. That doesn't mean that we coast. That doesn't mean that we just take a foot off the gas. That doesn't mean that we just take time to rest and recover. It says that because we know that a Savior has come, but because we know that Christ has been born, because of who we are in Christ, we continue to press forward. And We just don't go home and just collapse and say, oh, the season's finally over. No. We let us draw near. We let us hold fast. We let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as it happened in some, but encouraging one another. And all the more, as you see the day drawing near, he is saying that when you know your identity is in Christ, you keep moving forward. So church, I wonder where you're at in the story this morning. Everybody's in chapter one. but I can't say that everybody's in chapter two or three or four. Where are you at this morning? Bide your heads for me, please.